So, so I guess I could tell the story. If we're talking about the issues of, of false positives, and I could give a story from a friend of mine uh, who went into the industry um, doing cancer diagnostics, very successful, extremely successful, and uh, sufficiently successful that he didn't have to do colonoscopies anymore. He had virtual colonoscopy. They do a whole body MRI and they found something near his colon, at which point they did a real colon colonoscopy, and they didn't find anything. So they said, oh, well, it must be a cryptic lesion. And so then they operated and took three inches of his colon out, and there was nothing there. Uh, so he's alive, but that's a fairly major procedure to go through uh, for a false positive. So the doctors have a financial stake in the MRI machine? <laughs> well, there those kind of cross conflicts of interest, too. Uh, the, that's, a, that's another level of feedback that I, I don't have in these models, I'm afraid. <laughs> um, so uh, to f we finished last time uh, with the second paradox about uh, epithelial origin of the majority of, of cancers and talked about or speculated about some kind of uh, possible explanation for that. Um, but to me, as I say, and I understand why uh, one can argue about whether the timescale is irrelevant, uh, the implication is that fundamentally any uh, immortal cell population has at least the potential to behave in a cancerous way simply by drift of uh, phenotypic property. So phenotypic drift means no change in genome, simply a change in the set switches of which genes are expressed, and, and then that's inherited. No, I, 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 uh, what I, I'm not, no, I think that there's a, there's a, a, a directional issue there. I am not saying that, um, that you, phenotypic drift implies that there are no genetic changes. It's simply a statement that they're not required. Okay. Right. What, what's relevant is, the, is, the, is the, phenoty the phenotype, the mechanism that gives rise to the phenotype, may be very important in specific cases, but in a generic model, we don't have enough information to include that. Okay. So, coming back, and the order of these gets uh, revised from time to time, but coming back to this idea that, and Again, perhaps I should have put in a slide from a typical uh, cancer biology textbook, but there's a nice little uh, clock diagram of the uh, phases of cancer progression. And there is a gen general understanding that uh, first you have a mutation that does X. This is followed by a mutation that does Y. This is followed by a mutation that does Z. And while the order of uh, uh, accumulation of uh, particular phenotypic changes is not uh, always the same. There is, in fact, a generally accepted order in which these things occur. Certain things happen generally before others. Uh, varies a little cancer type to cancer type. And the number of things used to be seven? That used to be seven, now it's nine or 10 or 11. But it's uh, uh, the, the typical ones, and again, I, I took out that slide, are reduction in cell cell adhesivity, increase in cell motility, uh, production of autocrine growth factors, uh, evasion of the immune system, um, and then those are the, well, there are others. How many of these are thought to be compulsory? And how many of these are thought to be optional? Or is there just a continuous transition between compulsory and optional? Um, this is not a good question. 
there, there, th that comes back to the question of whether metastasis is in fact a single phenomenon or multiple phenomena or epiphenomenon. Um, so I think that it varies from cancer to cancer, but in general, uh, you will not get metastasis if you don't have reduced cell cell adhesivity. You won't get metastasis if you don't have some kind of immune system avoidance. Uh, usually, although not always, you do require some kind of autocrine growth factor production. Uh, you have to have some way of moving. So if you start out as an epithelial cell, you have to go from an epithelial to a mesenchymal cell. Um, so, so some of these are obligatory. Uh, exactly which combination, it may be sort of pick seven out of ten. Uh, but, uh, and again, I'm sure that everybody has some favorite cancer that violates those, those rules. And if you're at something like a leukemia, uh, it may not be relevant. Um, but I think I'm, what I'm trying to draw your attention to is actually a word, which is progression, which is not a word that is typically associated with evolution or at least shouldn't be. Um, mutation, phenotypic or genomic, is intrinsically undirectional. And specifically, uh, it acts on all cell behaviors, all genes at the same time. There's no particular reason that you should have a mutation that's directed at a cell adhesion molecule before you have a mutation that's directed, for example, at a cell proliferation-related molecule. The mutation is blind to that because the mutation doesn't have any concept of phenotypic outcome. And similarly, there's no sense of directionality. You could have a mutation that upregulates the function of molecule X or downregulates, upregulates production and downregulates. And so then the question is why do you have the appearance of a directional, more or less deterministic progression? which leads to the various hallmarks of cancer progression in a more or less standard sequence. And if you think about this from a complex systems point of view, uh, the mathematicians and physicists have, a, have a, a, a word for that. Uh, doesn't necessarily give you any understanding, but it's what we would call camelization. Um, and so clearly what has to happen is that the environment of the tumor, whatever it is, that's a combination of the stroma, the host body, and the cells in the tumor itself, and their interactions, have to lead sequentially to selections favoring mutations of different types in specific directions. So uh, only after you have had reduced cell adhesion is it favorable to have some other change in phenotypic behavior, for example. And so in some sense, this is a tautology. You're not saying anything very exciting. But it's a very different interpretation of what's going on from saying deterministically you have this mutation followed by this mutation followed by this mutation. I mean, it's possible, isn't it, that in a mythological world, at least, a mutation could change some regulatory system, thus making a subsequent mutation more likely? Well, you could knock out a proofreading gene, for example. That would increase the rate of mutation, but it would increase the rate of any mutation. Right. So you would expect then that the divergence of any phenotypic property, the variance of any phenotypic property would increase, but it wouldn't give you directionality. 
and it wouldn't say why one gene would result evolve it rather than another. And again, I'm not saying that in particular cases it can't be a specific gene in a specific sequence. I'm just saying that in general, that can't, the, the mutation can't be an explanation. And so the hypothesis that we're going to test here is going to be that resource limitation can drive certain kinds of evolution. Um, in particular, I'm going to look at a very simple case where I can actually calculate the result, uh, which is that uh, spatial heterogeneity in resources reduces cell-cell adhesion. Um, and this is what's become known as the Red Queen Paradox, because if I need to be less adhesive than my neighbors in order to reproduce, and my neighbors are my own offspring, they're less adhesive, and therefore I have to become even less adhesive. So I've got a ratchet. And uh, that's a quantitative ratchet, but you can also have qualitative ratchets, and that's how you, in principle, must get, I think, uh, this kind of canalization. And the natural question to ask in that context is what kinds of heterogeneity drive what aspects of progression? And eventually, you'd like to be able to say uh, if we could somehow bias the environment to uh, favor uh, the reverse factors of progression, or at least delay progression. And so in these, these toy models, I'm simply going to look at uh, cell adhesion uh, and uh, cell adhesion to the extracellular environment, to stroma, uh, as my metrics. And again, this is, in a sense, the least interesting one because I'm going to know the answer. But it's, I think, still instructive. So we're going to have cells. The cells can stick to each other. Imagine, say, with a homotypic cadherin. And cadherin switching is, is a typical uh, mechanism in cancer progression. Uh, and they're going to interact with their DCM, for example, with some kind of heterotypic uh, fibronectin integrin binding. And we're going to assume, we're going to assume that at any time, uh, the levels of cadherin and integrin of any cell can evolve simultaneously and independently of each other. So, we're going to have cells. Um, they're going to be stem-like or somatic cancer cells. Um, again, I'm not going to represent the extracellular environment. I'm not going to represent the extracellular environment explicitly. I'm not going to represent the extracellular environment explicitly. Um, I'm going to have cell growth and division. Cells are going to move randomly at some level, diffuse. I'm going to have cell death uh, due to senescence. Uh, later on, I may have some other things killing cells, potentially starvation. I'm going to have cell differentiation. Uh, now I'm going to introduce multiple states, proliferating, quiescent, and necrotic. Uh, I'm still going to have potentially senescence, mutation. Fields can diffuse, decay, be produced. Uh, cells can absorb nutrient, and there are going to be some other things they do later on. Can you say a little bit more about the ECM uh, adhesion? What does ECM stand for? What Extracellular matrix. This so this is, a, this is a super coarse-grained representation of everything that's not tumor. It's just going to be a background field which the cells can stick to. And it, it's uh, kind of a glue, I guess. 
Uh, but it's different than cadherins? And what? Uh, the, the, the background here, I'll show you in a second. It's better to show a picture. Um, so, okay, let me come back there just one second. Okay, and so I'm going to assume there's a nutrient, and in this case we can call it glucose, although it could be any limiting nutrient, and the cells are going to uh, absorb it according to michaelis menten formalism. They're not going to be able to absorb uh, glucose if there isn't any. Um, and the, it doesn't decay, but it does diffuse. We're going to assume it's produced uniformly in the background. Um, we're going to make assumptions that the cell has some metabolic resting rate. Um, if it has nutrient that is greater than its nesting need, the cell accumulates some kind of resource, call it health. Uh, if it gets enough of that, it starts proliferating. Not a wonderful model of cell cycle, but it's a little more sophisticated than the previous model, where there was just a constant rate of growth. And if the amount of nutrient available to the cell is less than its resting need, or if the cell is too compressed, then it's damaged. Um, and that allows it then, that should be, uh, um, this is reversed. It should be going from quiescent or proliferative to necrotic. So P and the N are reversed here. So if the cell gets hurt enough by starvation or pressure, it dies. If the cell uh, has enough of a surplus of nutrients, it proliferates. It's not a wonderful model, but it's not a terrible one to start with. And what you find, of course, is that uh, if you have some cluster of cells, uh, they chew up the uh, glucose available in the background, uh, and that means there'll be a gradient of glucose uh, in the uh, tumor. And so there'll be an increase of damage as I go from the surface of the tumor to the center. And I showed you that in that very first simulation where I said you have a group of proliferating cells as the cluster grows because of the limits of diffusion, the cells in the center start starving, they become necrotic. Okay. And I'm initially going to assume um, that the cell has a cycle time of about a day, uh, assuming it has enough glucose. Doesn't really matter. And the scaling is going to be such that the simulations are small. In fact, each one of these simulated cells represents probably a few thousand uh, real cells. Scales, I've changed the length scales of the diffusion so that I have a, a finite simulation. So within your model, those 2,000 cells are dividing simultaneously? Uh, they're not going to all divide simultaneously because at the growth rate will depend on the nutrient availability, which will be different for each cell. Different, different locations. And the division happens simply when the cell reaches a doubling volume. Boy, that's too fast. Okay, so what's happening here, and I'll play it again, is that I start out with a single cell that will proliferate. Um, as that cell proliferates, uh, you will get uh, its differentiation into, first, to the state changes from um, quiescent to proliferating to necrotic. Um, I can look at the cadherin heat map here, um, and what I will see is that initially my cell will be red. It'll have a high cadherin level. And as time passes, the cells will become bluer. 
and you'll notice that where the clusters are, they're green or yellow. Those are cells that are still cohesive enough to stay together. And what you say essentially is that very rapidly these cells spread out through the background uh, and form clusters. Um, if I look at integrins, um, the in initial integrin level is low, that is the cells would prefer to stick to each other rather than to the extracellular environment, and the integrin level will come up. And uh, once the cells have spread out, the rate of nutrient production in the system is such that if I'm an individual cell surrounded by uh, medium, by stroma, I'm relatively well fed. Uh, cells in these clusters are starved. Let me play that again. This was written, this movie was made for a different version of uh, of um, uh, PowerPoint, which played much more slowly. And I haven't gone back and re-edited it. So, in the later movies, this will happen more uh, slowly. If you watch very carefully, you'll see that there's an initial formation of a single cluster. That formation of single cluster is followed by a rapid reduction of coherence at the surface of the set cluster and a rapid integrase of integrins at the surface of the cluster. That leads to cells fanning out in the environment and the rapid spread of, this disease, uh, of the cancer cell. And if I want to let this play through, Stem cells and somatic cells are distinguished here? Uh, in this simulation, yes, there are stem cells and somatic cells. But you do, we can't see in any of these uh, little uh, no. parallel evolutions which is which. No, I don't have that here. Um, in this case, the, the number of uh, somatic generations is fixed. Uh, I'm not evolving that, or the percentage of stem cells. I'm only evolving the coherent and integrin densities. So SQPN means what in the overlap? Somatic, quiescent, proliferating, and necrotic. Some are stone. Okay. Yes. Right. And so if I look at the total number of cells, uh, it goes up, um, basically stabilizes uh, relatively rapidly. If I look at the coherence, I see the coherent levels, that is cell-cell adhesion goes down fluctuates after a while. Notice that the stem cells tend to have a higher cell-cell adhesion than the non-stem cells, even though initially they're the same. Uh, and the integrin level, that is adhesion to the environment, and that's ability to penetrate out into the environment, goes up and then fluctuates, stabilizes. So I do reach a quasi-equilibrium here. After a while, the coherent level ceases to go down the integrin level ceases to go up, and I reach a dynamic equilibrium. Can you get these cell shapes in the movement? So that's a, a detail of the modeling methodology. Uh, each this is a lattice-based model. This is it's living on it. It happens a square lattice, although you can use other lattices. It's two-dimensional, you can use 3D. Uh, each cell is a domain of pixels, uh, which has a defined volume and surface area, and a defined motility. Um, so the cells occupy a finite amount of space. If you squeeze them together, they behave like ideal gases. They're compressible um, a little bit. 
um, they have a membrane elasticity associated with them. Uh, and in this particular simulation, the motility is fairly high, which is why they jump around a bit. This is, this is very pretty and, and uh, sure very insightful, but I guess I, I would be a little worried, I'm sure you thought about it, James, it, you, you have very high dimensional parameter space. Many things need to be chosen, and are, are you sure you're in a biologically relevant corner of this space? Well, in this particular case, I would say that the motility of these cells is too high to be realistic. Um, if I were talking about uh, I was just saying earlier, if you're talking about a, a cancer like glioblastoma, essentially you have two glioblastoma cells that will spread in your brain as far apart as possible. They're basically metastatic from day one. That's not quite true. They have some cell-cell adhesivity, but it's very limited. And they spread very fast. Uh, so uh, this wouldn't be a terrible model for spread of a glioblastoma. Uh, in fact, if you look at the, the uh, models that Kristen Swanson uses, they're, they're pure diffusion models because the cells essentially don't stick. There's so many uh, different kinds of cancer that for any parameter choice, there's probably one That's right. that fits if you can only find it. Right. Um, however, um, what you can show is that for a very wide range of parameters, this basic process, namely the reduction of cadherin and the increase of integrin, is persistent. And there's a very simple reason for that. If I'm in a compact cluster, and I'm on the surface of the cluster, I have an adequate amount of nutrient. If I go to the center, I die with probability one. And therefore, any cell that has a lower surface tension, and I can lower my surface tension either by decreasing my cadherin or increasing my integrin, compared to my other cells in the cluster, will have a higher fitness. So that's why I'm saying this situation, I can actually predict the outcome. Advance. I wouldn't have to run the simulation to do it. And I could calculate, although I haven't done it in this particular case, I can calculate the rate at which that evolution will occur and validate it. Okay. So there is a basic result here, which is that if you have a spatial gradient of nutrient, the result of that is that the cell-cell cohesion goes down and the cell invasiveness goes up, that is, integrins go up. And the final morphology in this particular case is dispersed cells, although if I had a textured ex uh, stroma, I might not get that, and a high risk of tumor spread. And that's quite generic. The rate at which it occurs and the degree to which it occurs will depend on other parameter choices. But the generic set of behaviors, qualitative behaviors, are uh, extremely robust to the parameter choices. Now, there also are finite size effects. Here I'm going to show it a little slower. Here's my initial growth. You'll see there's starvation of cells in the middle. There's a gradual reduction of cadherins here from red to green. Note the reds are in the middle. Integrins are going to go up a little bit on the surface. But I started with one stem cell. The yellows here are stem. Here, stem. And in this particular simulation, let's see when it happened, my stem cells are going to die. They come to the center, they starve, and they die. Once all of my stem cells have died, this tumor is doomed after a certain number of generations. 
So stem cells are now yellow in the upper left? Yeah, in this, in this simulation, they're yellow. And I, sorry, I misspoke really. S is stem cell. I said okay. somatic. I got exactly. Okay. So the evolution here looks the same as the other one, but eventually I'm going to exhaust my number of divisions and have senescence clear me up. And so in this case, you're getting a spontaneous remission because each one of these clusters typically has a very few stem cells. And so any given cluster has a reasonable probability of a stem cell dying. There. starvation, right? In this case, out of starvation. And so the stem cells go to the center in the upper left? Do they, do they, why were they so foolish to do that? Or just a chance fluctuation? Or? There could be a number of reasons. You'd have to look at the specific case. Um, the stem cell adhesivity is fluctuating. And again, it can fluctuate up or down. Basically, you have a small number. You have a small number effect because the number of stem cells is very small. You're never going to be able to kill off by a fluctuation all of your somatic cells. But if you have two or one, two, three, or four stem cells, and there's some probability of any given cell dying, uh, there's a finite chance then the individual stem cells will die. But then, in that particular scenario that you showed us, they all they went to the center, which yes. Accelerated their death. That means that, that they had a slightly higher cell cell adhesivity than the others. But remember that any given step, the adhesivity can go up or down. So it's only a selective pressure, not a, devolution, not a variational pressure that determines the direction. And you see, uh, this is not very convincing, um, but you actually see some canalization here where if you do a, hist a plot, uh, mean cadherin uh, versus mean integrin level for the stem and the non-stem cells, you start here, high cadherin, low integrin. And what you see is that you have a typical trajectory where the cadherin level drops first, and then the integrin level increases. Right? Big fluctuations, but you don't see here Right, you, from the initial state, the coherent level drops very rapidly, more or less monotonically, and I don't move up in the integrin level very fast. Only when the coherent level gets down here to around four does the integrin level start going up. That's what I mean by canalization. I could have coherent increase or decrease. I could have integrin increase or decrease, both at the same time. So the variation happens at the same time for both, in both directions. But the cadherins decrease first. Only when the cadherin levels have come down do the integrin levels begin to increase. And so this is an emergent sequencing of events due to selection. And uh, if I ran 100 replicas, it would look a lot better than this. This is for one replica. And one thing that we haven't done a lot of, but one can do, in this kind of model, of course, is trace lineages. And in fact, you find that the cells specialize into, in this case, two lineages, a high, uh, excuse me, a high, a high, high cell adhesion lineage and a low cell adhesion lineage, descended from particular ancestors. And you have in the back of your mind that this is a phenotypic lineage. It doesn't matter 
Well, it can be any heritable variation. So that, that if you want, if you have a belief that you want to build a model where you have a specific genetic mutation that affects the cell adhesion, then you're free to put that in. This just doesn't assume a mechanism. What it does assume is heritability. So nothing here says you can't have a pure genetic, a pure genetic mechanism of whatever kind you like. It's just a question of whether you need it to uh, explain this. Okay. So if <clears throat> nutrient limitation leads to invasiveness in those simulations, why don't replicating stem cells become cancerous? quickly. Why don't we die of cancer when we're six months old instead of 80 years old? And one game that we can play, another simple game, oversimplistic perhaps, certainly oversimplistic, is an observation that in fact your body is throwing, again the numbers are very uh, uncertain, but hundreds to thousands to perhaps tens of thousands of protocancerous cells a day, which are cleaned up by your immune system. And the flip side of that is that immune deficiency, for example, you have a heart transplant or a liver transplant and you put on an immunosuppressive, or you put on an immunosuppressive, uh, which is an anti-inflammatory, or you have a disease like HIV, which leads to immunodeficiency, is often associated with rapid cancer onset and progression. And so we're going to test uh, a very simple toy model of the question about what possible role could uh, immune killing play in modulating progression. And so uh, the actual way that the immune system finds and kills cells is of course extremely complex. Um, people who build this kind of model have come up with uh, a maximally naive model of uh, immune killing, uh, which is defined as follows. Uh, the probability of my killing a cell is some hill function of the contact area between my cell and the stroma. If I'm surrounded by other cells, I'm harder to access and therefore uh, I'm more likely to be killed if I'm an isolated cell uh, in the stroma than I am if I'm surrounded by other tumor cells. Um, certainly there's much more going on than that, but it's not unreasonable uh, that uh, your uh, immune cells have to have access to be able to kill the cancer cells. So now I'm going to run my same simulation uh, with a strong immune system. So what happens here in this simulation is that if a cell uh, is surrounded by stroma, it has a high probability of being killed off. And so my initial evolution is very similar. I get my distribution of cell types. I get a reduction of cadherins on the surface of my tissue. Um, I get starvation at the center of my cluster. And I get an enhancement of integrins on the surface but I don't get spread of metastasis. And if I look at the mean coherent and the spread, 
What I find is that my cadherin level goes down a little bit, but much less. My reduction in cell cell adhesivity is much, much more limited. And in fact, the change in mean adhesivity is less than the standard deviation of the adhesivity. So effectively, my adhesion doesn't go down much, and my integrins go up a little bit, but then fluctuate. And again, there's effectively no change in integrins. And so the fact that I kill off cells that are separated from the tumor and that the cells at the surface of the tumor now have a slightly elevated chance of dying because they're more exposed is enough to make this what you would call uh, a non-progressing tumor, if you want to call it a benign tumor, as long as your immune system is keeping this tumor uh, in uh, is present it will keep this tumor in, in control. Notice that the cells are still proliferating. There's a rapid rate of cell turnover. Uh, there's still evolution and variation going on, but I've now got a selective environment which does not favor the formation of metastasis. So my cohesion remains high. My morphology remains compact. Um, I didn't show you that the stem cells can die more, frequ um, more frequently than they did in the other one, but they do if you run a lot of replicas. And there's a very low risk of this tumor spreading. Now if I weaken the immune system, so everything's the same, but the fraction of cells killed is lower, still finite, but lower. Now things start out as before, but you'll see these cells can spread out and persist for some amount of time. And what will happen eventually is that if one of these spreading cells can grow enough to make a cluster, or this main cluster can divide, now a cluster of cells can persist. And so in this case, you have the ability to metastasize not single cells, but finite cell clusters. And people like Friedel have done a, a good deal of work. There's a general assumption that in most solid tumors, metastases occur by the spread of single cells. Now, there's more and more evidence that in more and more cancer types, that's not true, that you actually have to have cell clusters uh, to actually form a successful metastasis. And so in this case, the evolution looks much more like the evolution before. The cadherin level goes down, integrin level comes up, but instead of sending out a lot of individual single cell metastases and forming small clusters, I get a couple of large cell clusters that persist. And if I run this for longer, I'll gradually fill up my space with these cell clusters. And again, I can summarize this very simply. A cohesion again decreases, invasiveness goes up a little bit. I get morphology of compact clusters with only a few single cells in the background. And I have a higher risk of tumor spread. Of course, once I have multiple clusters, I have separate groups of stem cells that are isolated from each other. And so the probability of remission is very low. The probability I kill all my stem cells is very low. And so I can summarize that in a little table. Where a strong immune system promotes cohesiveness, weak immune system reduces cohesiveness, integrins go up a little bit in both cases, both of them keep compact morphologies for the main tumor, but I get secondary tumors 
of the immune system. Get a remission, a spontaneous remission with strong immune killing, not with weak. Uh, don't get spread with strong immune, do with weak. And so we can think of these perhaps as prototypically benign or metastatic. And so thinking just about a few very simple mechanisms. Um, gradients of nutrient, which lead to decreased cell-cell adhesion and increased cell-ECM adhesion, increased invasiveness. By themselves, you get invasion by single cells. Potentially, you can also get spontaneous remission and canalization of the evolution. That is, first something happens and something else happens, although that's not put into the model by hand. Adding this immune-killing model has a very dramatic effect. It leads to a benign uh, tumor with high degree of cell rollover, but uh, no spread. James, I have a point. Many tumors um, have active mechanisms to evade the immune response. In fact, if you look at some tumors in the colon, for example, you can see immune cells all around the tumor, and that's a sign of poor prognosis. And, and, and in other organs, if you see the immune response, then it's a sign of good prognosis. Right? So somehow you're missing this active mechanism. Yes, there, there, there's a whole issue about um, whether, um, because, stem, because many certain kinds of immune cells have the ability to do things that look very much like metastasis. They can enter the bloodstream, migrate through the bloodstream, and then exit the bloodstream into tissues. Uh, there's certainly some evidence that in some cases cancer cells are able to piggyback or hijack that essentially and follow an immune cell, use an immune cell as a leader and have it basically trailblaze for them to do uh, to allow metastasis. Um, there's also a second issue, which is um, are the, that, that would be the case where the immune cells are poor prognosis. Uh, the other side is if the immune cells are able to invade, then the hypothesis I had here, which was that effectively if I'm a compact cluster, I can't kill cells in the center of the cluster, would fail. And I would have to then look at a different kind of killing function. Um, this naive model where you simply say contact with stroma is a surrogate for the probability of being killed is a very simplistic one, um, but uh, it's, a common, it's surprisingly commonly used, which is why we did it uh, in the literature. And we wanted to begin by reproducing uh, accepted results before we went further. Um, clearly, if you had specific model of specific uh, killer cells, that, for example, recognized a chemotactic signal and had some probability on contact of killing cells and had some ability to move through tissue, then you'd have a much more realistic immune cell model. And people like Denise Kirshner at Michigan have done some quite impressive models of uh, migration of leukocytes of various kinds uh, in this context. So absolutely, that's an example of, of a kind of model one would want to build. Yeah. I have what I think is a related question, and that is um, what I'm surprised to not hear in, talked about is, are, is, are any group effects? That is, I mean, a tumor is a group of cells, mm -hmm. and um, at, at some point there has to be some group 
properties mm -hmm. that possibly emerge. I'm just wondering if you could comment on that. You got you just the two questions that were asked were exactly what this next paradox is about. So if I start out with my stem cell and it uh, reproduces, why have any somatic cells at all? Why not just have stem cells? Um, the somatic cells, as somebody pointed out this morning, compete for resources with stem-like cells. Uh, and therefore, eventually, you're going to evolve to a situation where you have a very high rate of stem cells, at least in principle, without other effects. And so it's puzzling that in most tumors, the percentage of stem cells is still quite small. Um, and one answer, of course, is that the stem cell, the somatic cells may be performing uh, functions necessary uh, for stem cell survival. So this is a uh, shared good problem. Uh, one example of that uh, would be, for example, very often stem cells don't have uh, the ability to perform some of the behaviors that their uh, differentiated progeny can perform. Um, and so that's one possible uh, scenario. Another one could be that there could simply be shielding. For example, if the stem cells are not at the surface of the tumor and the probability of dying depends on your surface exposure, then if you're a stem cell that remains inside the tumor a little bit, you're protected. Um, so those are all sorts of uh, exactly the kind of issue you raise, which are collective goods. So we'll give a very simple example of that. We've shown that this immune killing can prevent metastasis and prevent progression in this simple model. And now we're going to say that some fraction of our differentiated cells can produce some survival factor, which is a diffusible survival factor, which has the effect of shielding from the immune system. And this could be, for example, a cytokine that's produced. There's a small cost uh, to producing it in my replication rate. Uh, and it has some kind of range. And here I'm going to assume that uh, a cell that secretes this survival factor uh, can slow the accumulation of immune killing uh, by a factor of two uh, over a range of about three cell diameters. And I can secrete survival factor or not, that's an evolved factor. And so now, as before, initially, my survival factor is turned off. I have what looks like this hot, strong immune system situation where I don't have progression. Adherin level stays high. Integrin level stays constant. And then some cells are going to begin to produce survival factor. Initially, not much happens. When the density of survival factor cells gets high enough, takes a while. Suddenly, and it seems to be a fairly abrupt transition, I cannot, single cells can't survive easily, but a combination of a stem cell plus a cell-producing survival factor can metastasize. And so these are cells that cannot metastasize as single cells because a single stem cell doesn't produce survival factor. If it goes out of my cluster, it dies. But if I have a stem cell that stays attached to a survival factor producing offspring, 
then I can form a secondary tumor. And how do the survival factor cells increase? Aren't they paying a cost for producing this compound? Yes, there is a cost function. So how do they increase locally? Uh, they increase locally and in regions, for example, at the surface of a tumor where the other cells are being killed off. At the surface of the tumor, I have a high nutrient level, so my re replication is high. Uh, I also have a higher probability of dying if I don't produce survival factor, if I'm not near a cell that produces survival factor. So it's not really an altruistic behavior. It's, it's helping themselves more than... I mean, the net effect on the cell making the survival factor is beneficial to the cell. Yeah. Um, let's see, in this one... You know, it's long enough ago, I don't know the answer to that. I believe the answer is no, uh, because if it did, I would expect the rate of survival factor to come up early. And it takes quite a while for it to grow. So it's not, I don't believe that's the case. And there is piggybacking. So let's see, in the end, well, let's see, is that true? In the end, almost all the cells produce survival factor at a low level, at a low level. Survival factor is, Maybe I missed this. It's a property of a cell, or is it a diffusible? It's a diffusible uh -huh. molecule. So it protects the cell, and it protects its neighbors. And you actually modeled the, the diffusion, or you just used no, the No, yes, the diffusion is explicit. And the diffusion length is scaled to be about two cell diameters. So if it's diffusible, then almost by definition, your, the highest amount will be where, you, where the source is. That's true, but it saturates, its effect saturates. Also, if I'm in the center of a cluster, the benefit to me of the survival factor is low because my exposure to the outside is low. So in fact, it's not so obvious what the solution is in this case. And you could play games where you get different outcomes. I'm not saying that's uh, What's interesting to me about it, though, is the fact that you see this very slow evolution, right? You, the adherin level stays high for the stem cells for quite a while and then drops abruptly. So there is really a change of the behavior of the system once the survival factor cells get to be common enough that you can be on the surface of the tumor. You didn't see that drop before? I thought you also No, no, different. Well, you see a drop, but it happens a different way. Oh. It happens early, it happens immediately. I see. Oh, okay. And in the case of the immune system, the strong immune system never happens. Just a little bit. And so this is a canalization where you have first, you have to evolve survival factor production, then you have coherent change. And in this case, in fact, the integrins never change very much. The coherent change by enough is to, sufficient to switch from a uh, compact phenotype to a multiple cluster phenotype. You see, some of the integrin production goes down, the blues, but not a lot. And I, by the way, I should mention experimentally. Um, Reduction of cell-cell adhesion molecules like adherins is essentially universal in solid tumors. Uh, increase of integrin production is true of many tumors, but not all. Poof. Okay. 
But this is this is an attempt specifically to show a collective uh, spread of collective of uh, of cells plus uh, plus uh, somatic cells. Do you have a do you have an estimate of the tumor size at which this transition? Because then you could test it in a mouse model. These are really our toy models. In other words, the, uh, the actual time sizes of real tumors at which these happen are usually in the hundreds of thousands to millions of cells. That's still a small tumor. It's small, but it's too large to do a simulation. So we're mapping these things so that the diffusion lengths are reasonable, but the cells are representing large numbers of cells. So then we have to increase the rate of mutation so that the, if we kept the rate of mutation at the real rate of mutation, uh, you would never have anything happen because there aren't enough cells. Um, so rescaling these kinds of toy models to be realistic is difficult. Um, you can do it in particular cases. So for example, in that simulation I showed at the beginning, uh, of the vasculature in the tumor, the diffusion lengths are about right. The cells are too big by a factor of 10, but the diffusion lengths are about right and the time scales are about right. Uh, here, uh, we haven't made a huge effort in these toy simulations to, to map these parameters onto realistic parameters. It's more to explore the, the uh, zoology of these kinds of behaviors. So the key thing here, again, is simply that when you have a collective good, you get no single cell invasiveness. But if you pair a stem cell with one or more uh, differentiated cells that produce survival factor, then you can get a collective spreading of nodules. And again, that's actually quite a common, um, a quite a common mechanism of metastasis, although there's a lot of argument about particular tumor types, how much of the tumor is spread by single cell metastasis versus multi-cell metastasis. Um, one of the, one, let me come back to that. One of the things that I found uh, very uh, stimulating thinking about this um, is if I look, and of course the statistics are rather poor in a small simulation of this kind, uh, if I look at the distribution of cell types and ranges of particular parameters after I have had a metastasis, what I find is that given the rather large error bars that are present in this simulation, uh, that each tumor metastasis recapitulates the distribution of cell types and ranges of parameters uh, that were present in the original. And so one question that I find very stimulating is whether you can in fact describe metastases as quasi-organisms. <coughs> you have a situation where you have a small population of potential colony forming or progenitor cells, stem cells. Uh, those stem cells when transplanted uh, typically give rise to tumors that recapitulate both the spatial structure and the behavioral profiles of the parent. And so there, particularly Dwayne Stupak in San Diego has done nice experiments where you take a tumor uh, in a skid mouse from, for example, breast cancer line, lung cancer line, and you put it through a 
uh, flow cytometer to characterize some distribution of some molecule. And you'll get some distribution. And now I take from that tumor some small number of cells, which presumably include a stem cell. I put it in another skid mouse and I grow a tumor. And I now take cells from that tumor and I fax them. And I see that I essentially recapitulate the original distribution. And so if I have a situation where there are a limited number of progenitor cells that are able to recapitulate the type distribution, the spatial organization, the behavioral distribution of the progenitor, that's what we mean by saying it's a quasi-organism. And so in fact, in that case, this idea of the tumor's ecosystem actually makes a lot of sense. In a sense, the cancer is often thought of as losing multicellular behaviors and losing control. Uh, I think it's often more appropriate to say that these are tumor cells are re-evolving or evolving different mechanisms of control that allow them to behave as, in a sense, multicelled organisms living in their host. And I understand that they're not, they don't have all of the properties we normally would associate with a multicelled organism, but they do have this quasi-organism ability to recapitulate themselves. What was the definition of a nodule? Was that your term? Clump. Well, nodule is a, is a medical term. Mm -hmm. So it's a clump of cells. But a clump that was uh, part of another clump? I mean, it, it, uh, is this like the yeast uh, snowflakes dividing, in a sense? or? Uh, uh, you've seen different kinds of, of spread. In one case, you saw uh, an initial tumor that divided by fission. Mm -hmm. In other cases, you had a single cell that went out and created another tumor. In third cases, you had a tumor cell surrounded by some set of helper cells that did it. And all three of those are observed in real cancer. They seem quite different to me, these mechanisms. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and depending on the particular... You're, you're calling all those nodules at this level. Once the tumor forms, it's a nodule. Uh -huh. If it's distinct, morpho I mean morphologically. Well, you get to that nodules vary. That's right. And so, what I'm 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 not saying that I'm just giving you I've given you examples of all three mechanisms. Yeah. Um, if one went in and studied this in more detail, one can say which situations favor which mechanism. But the key thing is that you have a stem cell population, which is a limited population which is able to go out, colonize, and recapitulate its organization. If the organization and quantitative distribution of types in the daughter were unrelated to those of the parent, then you wouldn't have this quasi-organismal property. But the fact that you're able to recapitulate not only that you grow, but that you grow and reproduce the same structure and the same distribution of cell types has properties related to an organism. I mean, this is maybe more like your, your ant colonies or bee colonies, if you prefer. So then, do you think this uh, quasi-organism is genetically or just controlled by the environment? I'm not. I think that it's a combination of the environment and genetics and probably a great deal of stochasticity. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that... Again, I'm simply trying to come up with a set of mechanisms, behavioral mechanisms, uh, that uh, you can connect to certain kinds of behaviors of the stromal environment that together give rise to certain kinds of behaviors of the tumor. Um, again, there's no reason that you can't map any of these to particular regulatory control if you have an idea that that's what's going on. 
and that could be genetic or epigenetic. Um, but what's fundamental is the variation of behavior. If you know the control mechanism, then by all means put in a control mechanism. And by the way, it's easy to do that in this kind of simulation. Okay. And there was another comment that came up in this meeting, in, in a meeting we had in, in Leiden a few months ago. Um, help me, what was his name? What? No, it was uh, from Israel. Israeli. Um, Domani, was that? Domani. Was it Domani? No, maybe it wasn't Domani. It was Etienne somebody. I have to look it up. He had a specific hypothesis based on Warburg effect that specific metabolic defects could cause certain kinds of cancer. And he asked a question, which I thought was quite intriguing. Could we come up with therapeutic agents, targeted therapies, that specifically kill cells with these specific metabolic defects? And of course, the first order, um, the first order response is, well, since the cancer cells are heterogeneous in their behaviors, um, if you kill the cells with a metabolic defect, you won't kill the other cells. And so you'll have rapid somatic evolution that would evolve resistance to this therapy, which is typical behavior of a tumor. Um, on the other hand, uh, he showed that in some cases, um, the way that resistance evolved in these cells was actually by restoring the missing metabolic pathway functions. And in that case, you're actually normalizing the cells. You're fixing the problem in the cells. You're killing off the cells that are bad in this respect. The cells that do survive aren't bad. If that metabolic defect is really causative of the cancerous behavior, then you've actually not only, you've cured the individual cells. And so that's quite an interesting, uh, an interesting example of uh, a possible normalization therapy that works in conjunction with self-killing rather than with uh, modulating cell environment. Okay. Atern Rupin. Rupin? Yes. That's what it was. Okay. Okay, coming back um, to another question that came up uh, some years ago, it was brought up quite a bit in the, uh, in the Brussels meeting, is that metastasis, and this I've already answered to some extent, seems to be evolutionary unfavor evolutionarily unfavorable, depending exactly what you mean by unfavorable. Uh, if you have a metastatic cell, you're lost from the tumor you're growing in, from the nodule you're growing in. Um, moreover, your immune system is quite good at clearing single cell metastases, even small cluster metastases. And so there are estimates that uh, for a million cells that separate from a tumor, only one will lead to actually a functional metastasis. And again, you have to give error bars of a few orders of magnitude. And so one possible resolution is that metastasis is actually an epiphenomenon. Um, that is, that metastasis is not something that is selected for ever, but rather a negative byproduct or a neutral byproduct of selection for something else. 
And this comes back to a problem I find really fascinating, which is why is metastasis associated with vascularization? And the typical hypothesis is that because some cancers metastasize by entering the bloodstream, being carried through the bloodstream and then leaving, the presence of the extra blood vessels makes the invasion of the blood vasculature more probable. And that's certainly a possibility. But I think there's potentially a more interesting possibility, which is that vascularization results not only in spatial variability of resources, but temporal variability of resources. And the reason for that is the paradox, and this is something that Friedel has shown experimentally, that the growth of blood vessels into a tumor can actually result in a lowering rather than an increase of the net amount of glucose and oxygen available to the tumor. Uh, the reason for this counterintuitive result is that the levels of vascular endothelial growth factor in the tumor are very high. They're non-physiological. Uh, the endothelial cells that normally form blood vessels don't form normal blood vessels at these very high VEGF levels. As a result, the um, morphology of the blood vessels is abnormal. They're leaky, so you get edema. And also, the flow through them is uh, not very good. And they also collapse easily. They don't uh, attract the parasites and other cell types that normally reinforce normal blood vessels. As a result, if you look in a tumor, you will have a rapid proliferation around the blood vessel because of the transport. That will result in a high level of hydrostatic pressure near the blood vessel, which leads then to collapse of the blood vessel. So think about a garden hose, which is a cheap garden hose, you step on it, and you interrupt flow. As a result, the region of the tumor, which had formerly had the highest level of cell proliferation, now has the lowest level of nutrient and oxygen. And those cells will then become necrotic and die. There is a general observation that if you have spatiotemporal availability of a limiting nutrient, that drives the evolution of motility of active motility. Basically, if I am a school of fish and I come into a region which is devoid of resources, I can swim somewhere else. If I am a tree and I am in a drought zone, I can't move. Now, there are limits to what happens in this case. If the rate of fluctuations temporally is very, very fast, on the order of milliseconds, say, we know that's going to have very little effect because the cell can average over that in much time. If the time scale of variation is very, very slow, for example, a year, then no amount of motility is going to help me. The same thing is true of a length scale. If the dead zone around a collapsed blood vessel is a nanometer across, my cells don't care. If it's a meter across, they can't escape. And so that means there has to be, for each cell type in each situation, a particular spatial and temporal frequency that maximizes the selective pressure to evolve motility. If we can quantify that, 
then potentially we can come up with ways of shifting the tumor off of that and slowing the evolution of invasiveness. I, can, can you go back a second? I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I, I'm not I'm not upset by your method of motivating this mm -hmm. paradox, but the view you're taking is that the tumor is a organism of some mm -hmm. sort. Metastasis is a complex trait, let's say, mm -hmm. and you want to understand, uh, uh, you know, why why there is metastasis, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I could think of metastasis. The evolution of metastasis would be parallel to the evolution of eusociality in insects. Uh huh. Or, for that matter, the evolution of of, uh, of multicellularity. I, if I had pure line of germ of, of of stem cells, that would be equivalent to a colonial organism where every cell can reproduce limitlessly. Yeah. And the evolution of a somatic phenotype is equivalent to germline somatic separation. The ability to form a new colony around a new stem cell is the ability for the organism to reproduce rather than the single cell to reproduce. What is the justification for viewing the tumor as an adapt as a unit of selection? I'm not saying it's a unit of selection. I have no hypotheses whatsoever about what the level of selection is. The only thing I know is that the cells individual well, actually it's not true. Ultimately what my my unit of selection is my stem cells. If my stem cells all die, I, all my cells die. Um, however, yeah, but this view you're taking on this slide is sort of, you know, it stems from your quasi-organism idea on the last slide, right? Right, but, but this comes back to some of the things that were said a, a week or two ago, two, I guess three weeks ago now, boy, time is passing quickly, which is that fundamentally the simulation doesn't take any view about what you call this. The simulation has not changed its assumption about whether a cell lives or dies. No, I, I agree. I, I'm and just, so I, if I want to call this selection at the level of a tumor cluster or a metastasis, no. um, I can do that or not do that. But ultimately, all I've done in the simulation is create a diffusing chemical field. Sure, but I, just, I, I want to understand the question you're raising mm -hmm. on this slide, which is mm -hmm. at a higher level mm -hmm. motivation, and it's saying... Uh, you know, from one point of view, metastasis doesn't make sense. Let's look at it from another point of view, or something like that. No, but well, I guess actually, I probably confused two two things together, which is why do you have metastasis at all? If you think about metastasis, the cells that leave the tumor are effectively dead to the tumor. From the point of view of the tumor, they're lost. Right. So they can have no evolutionary consequence for the tumor uh, given nodule itself. Mm -hmm. Although they can replicate outside, the tumor doesn't know that. Just the way if I'm an ant colony, if I send out another queen, that colony doesn't have any benefit or loss from that. Okay, so now I have a question which is within the tumor, why would I ever have a cell that leaves? And the answer there is that if you have a spatiotemporally varying availability of nutrient, and I reproduce, and my cells all stay, I reproduce very rapidly, but all my progeny stay near me, and there are dead zones that periodically sweep through the tumor, the probability that my whole clade 
gets extinguished is very high. Whereas if my cells are able to move actively through the tumor, they are likely to then survive this extinction. The benefit of that within the tumor is so large that the fact that I lose a few cells to the outside is not a significant cost. In other words, the, the, the behaviors that I evolve, which happen to give rise to metastasis, are not evolved to create metastasis. It's an epiphenomenon. They're evolved to promote my survival within my current nodule. It unfortunately happens that they also mean that I spread. Once you have that spread, then you can ask how does that secondary nodule behave? And so this issue of, 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 of quasi-organisms in metastasis is a separate one from the origin of metastasis. And I, I put the order, the ordering here is always a little bit ambiguous. I could put them in different order because it's not really a linear sequence. They, they connect. But fundamentally, the questions are separate. First of all, why would you ever get cells that separate from the tuber? What, what, why would that be beneficial? And the answer is it's not beneficial directly. It's beneficial because the same traits that give rise to separation benefit the cells within the tumor. The second question is, once you have some cells that spread, what do they do? And it happens that they have the ability then to give rise to other tumors. And so this is really two separate, two separate things. Thank you. Okay. And um, these are simulations which didn't ever work very well and which we really need to go back to. And there, here there really are a lot of parameters. Um, but what we did was we came up with a toy model where the nutrient availability uh, varies cyclically. And what you see when you do that is that you evolve regions, for example, of high coherent density and other regions that have low coherent density. Um, and these simulations, I have to say, we never ran far enough um, to uh, produce the kind of metastases that we were looking for. Um, but what you do get then are, is a very typical spatial patterning of the tumor, where you see here's a cluster of high coherent, high coherent, high coherent, low coherent in the background. And so what you get then is a particular spatial wavelength of cell properties that's associated basically with the time scale and spatial scale of change in the glucose. And so that uh, is where we are. And uh, I banged my head against um, this um, generic idea of spatial temporal variability leading to uh, invasive behaviors within the tumor. Um, for some time I've been trying to come up with a way of taking this rather vague idea and making it into a set of hypotheses that we could test in a more definitive way. Um, the generic observation is good, uh, but it's too vague still to really turn into a, a scientific statement and hypothesis. So uh, let me just summarize. Um, my first point is that no matter how much we study what's going on inside a single cell, we're never going to be able to come up with an understanding of cancer progression. Because cancer progression results from the interaction among cells and other cells in their environment. 
and changes of behavior. And so a behavior change of a particular type only has a particular meaning in a particular context. Um, even these very, very simple models in which tumors can only evolve their adhesion already show non-trivial effects due to things like extracellular nutrient um, Adding simple models of the immune system already produces uh, an interesting result, which is that if you have a strong enough immune killing response, you can have tumors that grow and treadmill, but never spread and never progress. And that's something we observe uh, in real organisms. If you then uh, interfere with the immune system, you can release that constraint and have the tumor spread. And that suggests, of course, that if you could enhance immune effects, you might be able to, of course, uh, inhibit immune, uh, lead to tumor remission. Um, people have tried that in all sorts of ways so far without tremendous success. The most successful way to do that, again, is to induce septic shock. Seems to work, provided you don't die. Um, and then this issue of a shareable good, like a diffusible survival factor, can lead to multi-cell metastases and quasi-organismal behaviors. And so I'm certainly not trying to say that we've solved any problems about cancer evolution, but I think that this kind of approach, using evolutionary ideas and simple models to understand how mechanisms interact, is at least promising for then trying to develop more realistic models in the future. And I'd like to say then that I'm really looking more for suggestions and ideas than anything else. There aren't any real conclusions here. Uh, I'd be glad to talk to people, have uh, feedback, criticism, and uh, collaborations on any of these problems. Thank you. I, mean, I, I certainly agree with the program here that taking an evolutionary perspective on cancer is going to be helpful. Um, and I remember this discussion at the last, at your first conference two years ago, about viewing the tumor as a superorganism or mm -hmm. organism of some sorts. And just as an outsider, this strikes me as really going too far down that road. I mean, basically what people are suggesting that claim that are that there's some evolutionary transition and in individuality going on within the body. Mm -hmm. That the cancer is um, you know is 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 um, a, a result of this transition mm -hmm. in individuality and I just can't buy that. I mean I, I just think that's that's I don't see any evidence for, for the, the that's how the immune system works. It distinguishes mm -hmm. self from non self and that's how as you get older you get autoimmune diseases because this recognition threshold gets compromised. So to some extent, he's right. The tumor is an evolving organism within the body, which is not visible to our normal defense mechanisms. And it evades by becoming something. Well, Rick, what are your objections? Is it, I mean, yeah. <laughs> first of all, you're looking for evidence. That's good, right? But, uh, but do you have a set of requirements that would have to be fulfilled for just in principle for this to be considered a, right. so there would have a unit of selection or whatever? So I would look for the, I mean, if we just go back to Queller's talk, right, um, at the conference of looking for um, high degrees of cooperation and low degrees of conflict within the, um, the, 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 uh, the tumor. 
One, I understand the cooperation, but I'm not sure why low conflict. Well, that was one of his quadrants. He had four quadrants. Only one quadrant was empty, basically. Well, and one that quadrant was the, was organism. the organism. That was the organism quadrant. Oh, I see. Okay. One quadrant was, and the other, the others were, were not organisms. Things that didn't have names yet. Yeah. Okay. Things of being individuals. But these are in, in, uh, intercalating between levels that already exist. So they may mm -hmm. not behave as we would expect. Or normal transitions. This is like a, between the organismal level and the cellular level, right? It's not like the formation of a new level on top of organisms. So all those rules of those quadrants may not apply. Or maybe another way to look at it is um, what are we going to miss if we apply a transitions and levels assumption here? Like, you know, from my field, if we assume that development has one right way and we look at it like that, then we're going to miss and misunderstand the variation that is present and the robustness in the system. So if we think about tumors as superorganisms and having crossed some threshold of over into individuality or something, what, what kinds of things might, might we miss uh, or be led astray by if we take that view? Maybe that's a way to look at it. Where does the analogy with the beehive break down? I mean, it probably breaks down many places, but. But I found it interesting that you you know you made this connection with the with the daughter queen or whatever founding a new colony. Uh, presumably, the reasons if you want to understand your last paradox five in the case of the beehive, presumably the explanation is completely different. Is that right? Or, or are you making a parallel even at the level? the explanatory level there? Well, we know that in some, it depends, of course, on the size of the tumor and the, I mean, it's, it's relatively rare for a tumor to have only one stem cell, at least if it's not very small. And so you're not talking about the beehive with a single queen, you're talking about a multi-queen beehive. Mm -hmm. um, and I, perhaps it's true that uh, so you don't gain much. Hives, most of them get decapitated or something. Right? No, there, there are plenty of species we heard about which where that's the normal. Oh, they were, okay. Yeah. So uh, perhaps this quasi, I'm not sure you maybe, I, I would go slightly, maybe take it slightly differently. Perhaps you could say that, that, that this uh, quasi-organism point of view isn't useful. It may not give you any insights into treating cancer. But um, you do have the, a couple of things that we associate with multicellularity. That's not surprising. You could say, well, why did it take three, four billion years after the origin of life to develop initial multicellularity? And how can our cancer cells do it in 100 generations? And there's a, there's a reasonable answer for that, which is that all the mechanisms are already in place. All you have to do is evolve new control for existing mechanisms. The second thing, and the reason that I always bring, I like to bring it up, and again, I'm not, I mean, these are ideas that come from elsewhere. It's not that I'm originating most of these ideas. Although again, the way I put them together may not be the same. Is that normally cancer progression is thought of in the textbook as a successive loss of cooperative mechanisms. And in this example, we are evolving cooperative mechanisms rather than losing them. I mean, the survival enhancing. Right. You have a situation where you go from cells that are individually acting 
to cells where only a cluster of cell properties are able to survive together. And they are able to do something which the individual cells aren't able to do. This cluster of cells is able to invade and create a new colony. Individual cells are not. And that's a classic emergent behavior. You have a behavior of the cluster of a collective that is different qualitatively from that of the individual. Like you, you resisted using the word cooperation to describe this, this uh, behavior because it's not clear that it's, that it's uh, disadvantageous to the cells performing the behavior. It's, in, in other words, probably benefiting their own survival by secreting this substance. That's well, no, no, no. Cooperation, no. is it? I mean, to put it in that matrix? Um, well, it would be a benefit. But why would we have to do that? Why can't we just do what he's, you know, following what he's saying? No, but what is the evidence? Just tell me then straight out, what is the evidence for viewing a tumor as a, a, um, an adapted unit, or an organism, or whatever, as an individual? The fact that if you create a new tumor from the original tumor, the shape, size, and distribution of components and their behaviors are recapitulated. Even the gene expressions are identical. Yes. And it's not that there is a single gene that's always the same. You develop many cell types in a particular structure that is recapitulated from the source tumor to the target tumor. If there were no collective interactions, you would not expect to reproduce the same structure. And, and that is created by one um, propagule cell? Yes. Provided that the single propagule cells, but remember, it's like a beehive. The, 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 uh, the, the, soma the somatic cells are dead end. All the cells eventually are derived from the stem cell. So if you want to think about a cell, uh, an egg cell with the helper cells around it, there are plenty of organisms where a single cell doesn't reproduce. You have to have multiple cells. In your talk, would you, would you um, give a reference to some papers that show that kind of lineage where you have, you know, where you have what you describe that is the daughter colonies having the same properties as the parent colonies? Well, Stupak has worked on it. Um, my former student. It's on the wiki. Yeah, yeah my, put, put some papers But I can, I'll pull, pull some things up. The one thing, uh, my student Abbas, now at, as a, the one at, now at, um, at uh, um, St. Jude's, is, is, is doing these experiments in detail uh, from primary cell lines. So they're taking specific cancer cells from patients, running them through a series of skid mice and looking at uh, the uh, degree of variation and homogeneity between successive generations. So, so we'll have a lot more data. We'll have a lot more experimental data soon. Sorry? What kind of environment do they have to, I'm not familiar with these experiments, but you have a mouse, it has a tumor. You take a cell from the tumor, it has to be the red cell, it has to be the stem cell. These are Put it into another mouse. Mm -hmm. How, how much does it matter where or when or how you put it into that mouse so that it will recapitulate the characteristics of the original tumor? The reason I ask is because I definitely know of experiments where you can take cells from tumors, and you mentioned some of them, and you can put them inside the inner cell mass of a mouse embryo, mm -hmm. and you can make it make a functional, normal mouse that sure. doesn't have cancer. So I'm wondering, I, you know, I know there's going to be exceptions, there's different types of tumors, but in, in this case, was it important to recapitulate the site of tumor formation? Yes. The, the, the well, these are immune-compromised mice. Okay. So they're skids. So they're severely immune-compromised mice. Um, and these are uh, abdominal um, implants. 
so they, they grow in, in a very specific environment. How accurately you can implant them and how small a cluster of cells you can implant are all things that have to be debated. You can't just take one cell and put it in the mouse and hope that it's going to grow. It's not going to happen. Um, but you can, they're working on trying to get the smallest possible explant uh, so that the lineage is as well defined as possible. Can I ask you a question about paradox number seven or six or whatever, which is a tissue specificity of metastases, which nobody understands. You know, kidney cancers go, can go everywhere. Yes. Brain cancers can't go anywhere outside the brain. Yes. So there, there's something missing from the modeling that you're doing. Have you thought of modeling uh, niche specificity? Well, is it in the trafficking that allows tumors to only grow in certain environments? Sure. I mean, this is, I mean, and, and why is it that they're sort of, just the way you have blood types, you have some, some, some tumors seem to be universal donors and some are, there's some tissues that are universal hosts. Right? Your liver, your liver, your liver is, is happy to host almost any kind of cancer. Right. Because uh, yes. everything drains through the liver. So. You put a brain cancer cell in the liver, it won't? Well, I don't know. It'll grow in a skin mouse, anything will grow, even in the back. Otherwise, but I mean, certainly, cell adhesion. I mean, these cells are reducing their cell cell adhesion, but they're not completely adhesion independent. And of course, one thing that happens in development is that the same molecules are deployed again and again in different environments. So the same growth factors will be used in the limb and the genitals in the lung, and they don't interfere with each other because they're spatially localized. And so there's certainly the possibility of accidental overlap where a growth factor that's normal to maintain a particular tissue happens to be the one that was also relevant to the source tissue. Well, since I posed the question, I can tell you that there are many ways to, many models you can imagine. One is that you can imagine the tumor regresses to some uh, embryonic phenotype. Yes. Uh, and, and therefore, it capitulates the tissues that it could yes. have made. Yes. Right? And, like and a teratoma. Yeah. Like a teratoma. But the other thing could be that it carries the niche with it mm -hmm. by somehow trafficking through the blood with the original tumor and bringing all the stuff it needs, the secret of all the needs, gave an environment in the metastatic cycle where it's basically the same environment. It changes the dynamics of the cells around right. it. And you can only do that with certain tissues. Sure. But it can have inductive signaling that those cells, those tissues respond to. And of course, there's also this whole issue of where you have not single cell metastasis, but collective invasion, either through the bloodstream or through tissue. And so it's, there are plenty of tumors where you see these tendrils of the tumor sticking out. They can go very long distances through connective tissue and then form secondaries elsewhere. Um, and those are clearly collective. Single cells don't do that. And in those cases, of course, your immune cells can actually lead us act as pathfinders because, of course, they break down the ECM and make space for the cells behind them. Um, and when we, when we look at, uh, when we do these simulations of, of uh, age-related macular degeneration, um, the neovascularization uh, experimentally can be led either by an activated endothelial cell or by a leukocyte because they both break down the ECM uh, leave the blood vessels penetrate into what's normally a dense uh, epithelial tissue, and so uh, if the cells in if the cells in the tumor don't necessarily need to have the ability to do that pathfinding, 
they can they can use the immune cells to do that. Um, and so I don't want to, I don't want to uh, to pretend that there isn't tremendous complexity in any real tumor. Um, this was a search for some very very simple principles that could then be examined for relevance in particular cases. Uh, there is no there's certainly no claim that this explains any any individual tumor type. Could you also put a reference on the wiki for the the somatic cells that your model is meant to explain? Just experimental evidence that there are these cells that are somehow benefiting the group. Well, I mean, this is this is a typical problem in cell differentiation of any kind of cell differentiation, where the stem cells don't express the trait, and the and the, the daughter cells, the differentiated daughter cells, do. Um, but maybe some general reference about cancer stem cells and what's mm -hmm. thought about them, because my understanding is it's it's, it's pretty it's pretty unclear exactly what yeah. their contribution to cancer is. That maybe that would be helpful. And I I'm. I tried to use, I think, I mean, I, I said stem cells verbally, but I think in the text it always says stem-like cells, at least I tried to. Um, uh, although people seem to be getting used to the idea of calling them stem cells. Yeah, the period ten, 10 years ago or so. Yeah, that people got very somatic cells that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I certainly agree that a cancer cell by its nature is to be a replicative cell. Mm -hmm. The ones that aren't replicating, they're somehow benefiting the group. That's the best evidence that I think you could muster for there being an organism. Well, but the text, but but the, but there's been a complete reversal of the opinion about that because the textbooks 30 years ago had said have said essentially that all the cells in the cancer were germ cells, were were replicative, and now in in most cancers the percentages are 10 to the minus six. I mean, it's 10 to the minus six, 10 to the minus seven, in terms of the fraction of stem cell. Are replicative? Yes. But are the other ones benefiting the group or are they just losers in some way? I mean, well, but because you have very strong selection, if they're losers, uh, I mean, that was what that first simulation was about. You lose, you, if, if, if nothing else is happening, you lose the, the non stem cell. It'd be good to, to throw some references mm -hmm. up around this sure. area. I can certainly put up some of the teratoma mm -hmm. stuff where they mm -hmm. take cells from teratomas and basically make them become germlines in new embryos yeah. that they make. And they can contribute to a germline in a chimeric way. And again, it's it's hard when the cells are small and you're working with mammals, they just kind of have to take a grab bag. So it's very difficult to know how many, and there's a lot, and it's not replicable. But anyway, I could throw up some references there that might be interesting. And I'm happy to dig out references for these things. Yes. James, if people want to play with CompuCell 3D, is or 2D, uh, is there is there uh, something you can point us to? Or? Yeah, well, we, we're saying we can maybe do a little. Is that what you were going to say? I was going to say, how about if we have like an informal demo session and, yeah. and people are interested? We can schedule that. We yeah. can schedule that in next week and, and uh -huh. plate and can do like a here's how it works. Would you be willing to try that? Okay. Yeah. 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 You can download, I mean, if you want yeah. to play with the software, you can download. Uh, you can download it uh, from our website. Uh, it'll run on Macs, PCs, and Linux. And 3D also does 2D. Uh, because it's a, a matrix, it's a it's a uh, it's a a uh, lattice-based model. Uh, 
x by y by 1 is 2D. Okay, got it. All right. Um, is the source code available too? Or yes. And is it in, what is it, Python? C++. Python. Okay, yeah. So, so the way, the way CompuCell works is uh, you could do the scripting in either, there's a markup language that defines static properties of the model if you want it, although you don't need it. And then uh, dynamic changes like cell type changes are specified in, in Python. And so it has these concepts like cell adhesion, cell motility, cell volume, and so on, uh, which you can then reference and control from a Python layer. Um, it's not trivial to write, but it, it, typically people can learn it in about three days to four days. And it also hooks in if you're used to, I don't know if anybody's ever used S, 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 SBW, System Biology Workbench, but this is, a, SBW is a package for doing reaction kinetic simulations, network simulation, network dynamic simulation. And uh, you can write and take any uh, SBML model coming from, and attach it to any CompuCell object. So if you have a particular metabolic or signaling pathway that you want to have a specific model of, you can plunk it down inside each of your cells and then explain how they interface with each other between cells and then run that. It automatically will then run. So you can build molecular control of cell properties if you know it. Tired? Everybody all right? I should point out there's no cookies and tea today because uh Physics talk. It's the physics colloquium today, and the subject is uh, superconductivity. It's by Robert Bergenau, who well-known professor at various institutions, including one of my professors at MIT, but most recently he was the head of the University of California, effectively. He, he ran the tuition. He ran, uh, <laughs> I think he ran Berkeley's campus or something. There's cookies there, right, at 3.30? Yeah, they have better cookies. Uh, so uh, those, the cookies start at 3.45, roughly. Wow. And that's at Broida. If you don't know how to get over to Broida, find someone who knows how to get you to that part of Broida. Um, okay, thanks, James. Thank you.